0: Thank you, Larry, for praying for us. I want us to consider Jesus today. Seems like an obvious thing to do in a sermon. But really and truly to consider Jesus. Jesus is a popular, if not mysterious, figure for our culture, our North American, Western culture. Uh, You can visit a Barnes & Noble or some other bookstore and see lots of books, magazine articles, on the life of Jesus, especially this time of the year. Uh, It's Easter. Folks are going to show up to church, darken the doors only at Easter maybe. Uh, And also, so magazines are going to sell magazine articles. Who is Jesus? What did he really do? Was he married? Was he actually God, the Son of God? There's even a recent movie, The Son of God, uh, that I think plays into Jesus' popularity. Uh, I haven't seen that movie. My point is that Jesus still gets pretty good... Publicity, pretty good press coverage in our day, 2,000 plus years later. But is he only a popular, if not mysterious, person, if he even was a historical person? I think when we consider the claims of Jesus, when we consider his words, when we look at his life, he's far too significant to only be a popular, mysterious, possibly historical person. We consider the truth about Jesus and what that means for us. I think we see that Jesus is the key to history, a person. The Son of God is the key to all history. So he is far too significant for us to be nonchalant, for us to be moderately interested. Because of who Jesus is and what he said, it's all or nothing. And this passage, John 6 60 to 71. This passage today shows us that. That because of who Jesus is, who he was and will be, and what he said, that his words bring about a divide in humanity. We need to, to, to grasp that. Jesus brings about a divide in humanity, and we see that happen in this text today. So if you turn to John 6, verses 60 to 71 we'll see that this passage unfolds in two scenes. This is the end of a story in John chapter 6. And this end of the story has two scenes. First, in verses 60 to 65, the first scene, we see that the words of Jesus challenge us. So, do we find offense or life in Jesus' words? Verses 60 to 65. In the second scene, verses 66 to 71, we see that the words of Jesus demand a response from us. So do we leave him offended, or do we remain and abide in him, finding life? So two scenes, and I'm going to read the passage broken up that way. So, I think we'll find that this passage will challenge us to discover what we truly want and truly need for eternal life. So I hope you have your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles, I think, in front of your feet there. Uh, So share or, or look at a Bible. Have one open here to John 6. So the first scene, verses 60 to 65. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is given him by the Father. So do we find offense or do we find life in Jesus' words, in all of his words? Because the words of Jesus, as we see in verses 60 and 61, offend many. We've entered the Gospel of John in at the middle of the front half of the gospel, so we need to to consider the context here, where we are. Uh, Jesus has uh, healed a blind man on the Sabbath in chapter 5. It's caused a great controversy with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. He's gone now to the Sea of Galilee, to near Capernaum, and there he fed at least 5,000. John, matter-of-factly, records that Jesus took uh, some loaves of bread and some fish and then Miraculously multiplied it and fed 5,000. And the crowds are in awe and fascinated at who this Jesus is. They have Moses and the manna in the wilderness on their minds. And so they wonder, remember these are Jews, they wonder, is this Moses the prophet Moses promised? Deuteronomy 18, Moses promised that there would be a prophet who would come, a perfect prophet sent by God. So this crowd wants to now make Jesus king. Sounds good, but Jesus retreats. Jesus can't be used, as we'll find out. Jesus retreats, leaving the crowd. He walks miraculously on water overnight, crosses the sea, saving the disciples. They come to the other side, and in verse 24 of chapter 6, John tells us that the crowd was seeking Jesus. The question is, why were they seeking Jesus? Clearly something's happened between the crowd's amazement at the feeding of the 5000 and now many of them offended finding this to be a hard saying. So what what happened? Well Jesus in verses 26 and 27 says that the crowd they sought him not because they saw signs, so it wasn't even the miracle, but it was because they had full bellies. They were seeking Jesus because he'd given them bread. They were genuinely hungry, he had met their need. So they want another miracle to meet that need. But again, Jesus can't be used by humans. In verses 35 to 40, he tells the crowd, I'm the bread of life that's come down from heaven. Jesus says, the bread that Moses gave your fathers in the desert, in the wilderness, was fine. But remember, your ancestors, they all died in the wilderness. Jesus says that he's the true bread. Come down from heaven and he will give life, eternal life. And the crowd, the Jews, begin to grumble, just as their fathers did in the wilderness in Exodus. They begin to grumble. This is a confusing and difficult and increasingly offensive teaching. Jesus increases the offensiveness in verses 52 to 58. He tells the crowd explicitly that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life and will be raised up on the last day. So for us, mostly background Gentiles, if you will, I think. And if we grew up in the church, this sounds, yeah, difficult, but good. Jesus offers eternal life. So why the hard saying. This is not a hard, hard to understand saying, but Jesus says in verse 61, they're offended. Why does this offend you? So why the offense? Well, first, according to Leviticus 17, it was against God's law to drink blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood, so you can't drink blood. God laid it out clearly. Jesus in John 5 has already healed a man on the Sabbath. The Jews there in Jerusalem thought this is a lawbreaker. He's breaking our traditions. So now Jesus looks increasingly like somebody who's against God's law. So that's part of the offense, but I don't think that's that's all of it. See, the second reason Jesus' teaching was hard, it was offensive, because Jesus was talking about death, about his death. In order for anyone to feed on Jesus' flesh and drink his blood, Jesus is going to need to die. They've wanted to make Jesus king, and now he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He's alluding to, I think, his cross, his death. So they're offended at this because the cross brings an offense, as we'll talk about. They're offended because, they see as one commentator, Herman Ritterbroth says, their salvation should be bound up with his self-offering into death. Jesus says in verse 51, If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's the bread of heaven sent from God, by God, to give eternal life to the world. And the crowd is offended because they know that this is about death. I think pragmatically they also think, well, this guy can't be our king. He's talking about death. Why continue to listen to him? He will not continue to meet our needs. He's not going to just do miracles when we demand. He's not just going to give us bread when we demand. He's not going to free us from foreign powers, the Romans. But Jesus responds to their offense, not by pandering, but with another question. Look at verse 62. He says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What does Jesus mean here? We put this in the reflection questions to consider. It's possible that Jesus talks more about his crucifixion. He's going to be raised up, lifted up on the cross. It's possible. I think it's more likely Jesus is alluding, referring to the glory he had with the Father before, it says, he was sent down, he was made flesh, he took on human flesh. Jesus uses his favorite term for himself, Son of Man. We've seen that in Matthew several times already. The Son of Man is a figure from Daniel chapter 7, the Old Testament. And the son of mysterious Son of Man figure actually appears on the clouds with the Ancient of Days. The clouds are an image of God's power. Only God reigns in the clouds. The Son of Man is with the Ancient of Days, Father God in heaven, receiving power over all kingdoms of the earth. Jesus is the Son of Man. What if you see see him ascending back to where he was before, in glory with the Father? So Jesus' words are offensive because he's talking about his coming down, his incarnation. His crucifixion and his glorification, the life of Jesus, causes an offense to this crowd. But again, Jesus takes it a direction we wouldn't expect, humanly speaking. He says in verses 63 and following, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. This is similar to what we saw in John 3, if you know that really popular story about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes and is intrigued. Jesus couldn't be doing all all these miracles and be just a human teacher. But then Jesus doesn't say, yeah, yeah, that's right. He doesn't talk about the miracles. He says, for one to be, to enter the kingdom, you have to be born again. Nicodemus is confused, and Jesus says, the flesh... You can't be born of the flesh to enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born of the Spirit. So for Jesus to say the Spirit who gives life, he's referring to the idea that flesh apart from God, human existence apart from God is good for nothing. It's bound by sin and death. The image, if you know Ezekiel the prophet in Ezekiel 37 God calls Ezekiel to go into this valley of dry, dead bones, an image for Israel at the time. And he tells Ezekiel to speak God's words over the dry, dead bones. Ezekiel obeys, he does, he speaks the words of God, and the bones begin to form together. Tendons start to form. Muscle comes on, flesh comes on, and the bones rise into life. So the Spirit of God gives life to that which was dead. Jesus says that His words are spirit and life. So flesh, for Jesus to say the flesh is no help at all, He doesn't mean His flesh, because Jesus is the Word of God made flesh, we know from John 1. But we need Jesus' flesh, His life, His blood, His death, to give us life. One commentator, a British commentator, E.C. Hoskins, said this, As the incarnate word is living flesh in the power of the Spirit, so the words of the Son of God give life to what is otherwise dead and profitless. So because Jesus is God in the flesh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, when he speaks his words are spirit and life. But despite this, Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. John says, Jesus knew from the beginning those who were not to believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus has already taught in John 6, and especially verse 44, that only the Father God can bring dead, lifeless, spiritually lifeless humans into relationship with him into believing that Jesus is the Son of God. The Father must draw, he must gather, he must quicken, he must make alive. So Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So belief in Jesus is a divine gift from above. Just as Jesus came down from above, our salvation flows that same way. We can't climb up to God. God must make us alive by his spirit, call us into the kingdom. But why, why, really, why didn't they believe this? A brief side note here. John doesn't, in a systematic way, resolve the tensions between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. John actually sees no tension there. So Jesus can call men to believe saying that it is the Father who brings them into belief. Why do these disciples not believe? What is belief is the question. According to Jesus in verse 56, if you look up a few verses, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. Belief in Jesus is finding all, as John Piper said, all of our satisfaction in him. Coming to Jesus as the bread of life to still the hunger of your soul is the same as believing in him, Piper says. That is what believing is. It is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. And Jesus' words are the way that these disciples should do that, the way that we should do that. Consider Jesus' own life. Jesus, when he was led into the wilderness, in Matthew 4, Tom preached this several months ago. The Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness, and he's tempted for 40 days by Satan. Satan offers him bread. I'll give you food. But Jesus says, quoting Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word from the mouth of God. So believing in Jesus is coming to Jesus, and coming to Jesus looks like, counting his words, everything. Staking your life, your safety, your security, our pleasure, our satisfaction, our everything on Jesus' life and words. Even if it costs us death, because Jesus has said in chapter 6 three times, he will raise it up on the last day. So the question is, what do we say about Jesus? What do we say about his words? If we pause for a moment and consider this first scene, bread was a very real need for this crowd. I think some were probably fine, but many were actually hungry. So don't misread this story as if Jesus is saying, food doesn't matter, bread doesn't matter. You need to be a Gnostic and walk around like you're above creation. Jesus actually really meets a true need. God meets those needs. And I think for many of us, we have needs. Bread, food, day to day, may not be a live need that we feel. I don't want to generalize. But overall, I think I can safely say that most of us haven't thought in a few days about to have enough to get a meal. There are plenty of brothers and sisters who think that around the world. But I think we have very different felt needs. So ask, let's ask ourselves, ask yourself, what do I think I need? What do you think you need? Is it respect, emotional stability, financial peace, or even to get out of the hole? Obedient children, the release from a difficult marriage, the hope of a future marriage, power, money what what do we think we need? I was convicted this week uh, writing a dissertation about the Bible that that in many ways can become my bread for life that my desire to make that a really excellent thing can actually become my the object of my desire and, and trust and peace God convicted me is terribly selfish and sinful so what do we in our lives what do we feel like we need ask yourself what do I want in order to know what I think I need because what we think we need is what then we desire what we want and what we strive after Jesus has taught explicitly that more than anything, this crowd, these disciples don't need bread, they need Him. More than anything, we don't need whatever I've listed, we need Him and His words. God gives us the power by the Spirit to believe His words. As He said, that no man can come to Me unless the Father draws him. Many don't believe. The Father's got to draw them. So if Jesus' words are spirit and life, as we've seen in scene one, they demand a response from us. And we see two different responses in the second scene. If you look with me now at verse 66. I'll read verses 66 to 71. After this, after Jesus said these things, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus' words demand and evoke a response. We are all responding to Jesus even right now. The question is, how are we responding? Earlier, Jesus indicated that his teaching was not hard because it was difficult to understand, but because it was offensive. So I said, he stated he is the bread of life. It requires his death. It requires him going to the cross. Jesus' cross is a stumbling block. The message that someone has to die so that I can be right with God is offensive. But it requir- because it requires me, it requires us to see that we are sinful, needy, dependent on someone outside of us. So the good news of the gospel, the cross of Christ, actually brings a divide in humanity. So we've seen it in verse 66. I think many of you have known this in your own lives. This is true for, Rebecca and I, some friends, we brought to church with us for several weeks. And for several weeks, they attended and they, Enjoyed meeting really nice people. You're all very lovely people. And singing new, catchy, kind of odd songs. And hearing Tom, this guy, speak very passionately, like he actually believed what he was talking about, from First Corinthians. They'd grown up in a state church, not going to church, but the few times they'd heard a pastor, it was very bland and unbelievable. Tom was very believable. He was preaching through 1 Corinthians. They heard great things about Christ, like love. Chapter 13. Sounds lovely. Love does. Yet, when Tom came to 1 Corinthians 15, and if you don't know 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection. It's about the historical bedrock of Christianity. It's about the gospel. That Jesus died, according to the scriptures. That he was buried he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that his resurrection actually gives life, eternal life, to those who believe him. Something changed in our friends after this message, after 1 Corinthians 15. They had heard that belief in Christ and the resurrection was actually the only way to know to worship God, to have forgiveness, to have life in God. They had heard that this meant that they were sinful, that were sinful, that were in need of God. So the cross of Christ requires that we affirm all that it means about our sin and our need for Jesus alone to be our redeemer, because only He can be, and His resurrection means that He is our redeemer. It's his victory over sin and death, but this offended our friends. I don't know what exactly they wanted it offended them because it stressed everything they believed about God about their actions about history it didn't fit with their perception of reality it's what the truth does it's what the gospel does I don't know what they wanted and they didn't believe they didn't trust at that time and we pray they will But this is exactly what we see in verse 66. Many of the disciples who've walked with, who've seen the King of Kings, the Son of God, in the flesh, leave Him. They go away. So if you're a doubter, a skeptic, and you say, well, I only need God to do this for me. God would just show up. Jesus showed up, and many left him. So the gospel brings a divide. The question is, what do we say about Jesus, about his gospel? Rather than stoop down and go home and defeat, Jesus turns to his 12 disciples. So the picture is stark. You can envision it. A literal image of discipleship, which means to walk, to follow after Jesus. And many disciples walk the other way, and they leave. Jesus turns to his remaining small little remnant, 12. And he says, do you want to go away as well? So even in God's sovereignty to draw humans to himself, he uses his son to pull out our desires, our wants. Peter provides, gives this amazing confession. He says, to whom will we go, Lord? To whom shall we go? Why did he say it? You have the words of eternal life, he says. Peter's not a perfect disciple. By the way, while we're tough on Peter, just ask if I am, if you are a perfect disciple. But Peter in verse 68 gets it exactly right. His confession that Jesus has the words of eternal life matches what Jesus says about his own words. So we're all human here, looking around. And something we do as humans is read other people and imply to other people motives, words, expectations that aren't theirs. We have expectations that aren't met, and -and so-and-so offended me this way. Lots of times it's because we haven't actually talked to them to hear what they actually think and believe. That's an analogy for what Peter does here to Jesus. To believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus is to hear what he says about himself. That's actually love. We take Jesus at his word. Peter takes him at his word. Lord, there's no one else we can go to for life. Peter believes. We've come to know, we have believed, and we have come to know it doesn't mean a progression. It's that's one statement saying, We truly believe. Trust that you are the holy one of God. Jesus uses this language that can be reserved only for God. Only God is holy. No man can see God, John says in chapter one. Holy One of Israel, as language Isaiah uses in, uh, in his book about Yahweh. So Jesus is the Holy One of God who alone has fellowship with the creator of the universe, who is actually God, mysteriously God in the flesh. So Peter confesses the divine, sinful nature of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, despite the popular books that sell lots of books that say Jesus, maybe he was married, he wasn't. Son of God, we have to take Jesus at his word. So Peter believes based on Jesus' words. So we've seen now two responses. Peter's confession, also with Peter's confession we see proof that Jesus' words are indeed spirit and life. Actually in Jesus' own ministry, in his own life, in his walking about, we see proof that his words are spirit and life. Peter confesses, and in Matthew 16, Peter's confession, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father has revealed this to you. So the divine gift of confession of faith in Jesus Christ is proof that Jesus' words are spirit and life. I think they're proof in our lives, too. Ask yourself where Where would I be apart from God's saving power, apart from the words of Jesus? Well, I think we see an idea of it at the end of this passage. And I want to confess to you it would be very lovely if this passage stopped at verse 69. Holy One of God, the twelve could celebrate. Good job, Peter, confessed for us go on to the next place, keep preaching. But it doesn't. Jesus, rather than celebrate Peter's confession here in John 6, says in verse 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve? So Jesus went around and chose his own twelve disciples. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. John, in lots of places in his gospel, puts in these little side notes to indicate what's coming. And as you know, if you know the story of Jesus' death, you know that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, sold his allegiance for money. This raises questions. What in the world is a representative of the devil doing amongst Jesus' twelve? So when Jesus says that one of you is the devil, and I think we could say, translate it, the devil, because Judas is doing the work of Satan. He's a tool of the devil. What is the devil but the one who rebels, who leads in rebellion against God? who accuses God. We see this in the book of Job. God calls up the devil, Satan. Where you been? What are you doing? And Satan answers accusatorily. He's accusing God and Job, God's people. Judas is engaged in that kind of work. He's rebelling against God, thus a devil. But we... I wasn't, in reading this and preparing this and praying, and you were probably not. That doesn't satisfy us. John said earlier, Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would leave him and the one who would betray him. So why did Jesus choose Judas as one of the twelve? Would you choose as a friend someone you knew who was going to betray you leading to your death? Maybe you're holier than me, but I wouldn't. This indicates by degree the huge gap between us and Jesus, the Holy One of God. It's also He's also different in nature. He's God in the flesh. But still, why did Jesus choose Judas? I think there's a few reasons. I'm going to give you four if you are note takers. First, in the Gospel of John, John write, he records various people that Jesus interacts with. And Judas is the literary example, the prime example, of the false disciple. The one who walks for a while with Jesus, all the while not believing him. All the while wanting his own power, respect, money his own way, more than Jesus. So Judas and the many who leave Jesus are an example of the false disciples. Peter and the other ten now who truly believe Jesus are examples of true disciples. So I think that's one reason. A second reason we have from John's Gospel is that it was actually a fulfillment of Scripture for Judas to be part of the twelve. In John chapter 13, Jesus has finished his ministry, public ministry, before the Jews. Most part, they've rejected him. The note of rejection in the Gospel of John is profound. Because John wants to get at who truly believes that Jesus is the Son of God. After chapter 12, John, Jesus turns in chapter 13 to his own, his twelfth. And he, as you know, washes their feet, as Patty prayed. Washes his disciples' feet. They should be serving him, but he serves them. And far as we know, he even washes Judas' feet. And then in John thirteen eighteen, he says, I know whom I have chosen. He knows who he chose. But in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, the one eating my bread has raised his heel against me. Quoting Psalm 41. In order that the scripture might be fulfilled, I have in my 12 a friend who's going to betray me. So I think Jesus chose Judas because he knew God's words. He knew God's words and how they mattered for his life. And he lived his life out of that. The question is, do we do that? Do we measure our life by God's word? So, Judas is a false disciple. He's an example of a false disciple. He's a fulfillment of Scripture. Third, we see Jesus' glory in knowing all things, in predicting Judas' betrayal. John 6 tells us that he knew from the beginning who would betray him. And in John 13, he actually predicts. He tells his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. So Jesus' glory in knowing all things, and also his love to his other 11 disciples to persevere. I'm amazed continually I learn how honest and upfront God is with us. Jesus is with his disciples. So Jesus' glory in predicting Judas' betrayal and his love for his disciples. Fourth, Judas chose Jesus, sorry, chose Judas to demonstrate God's glory even in and through and over evil. And this reason is profound and mysterious, but it gets at, I think, the heart of the gospel. Jesus chose Judas knowing that Judas would be the human instrument that led to his trial, that led to his crucifixion. Jesus is not about, he's about God's mission, God's glory. But even in bringing one who would betray him in his inner circle, in his twelve, Jesus shows his power even over evil, over the devil. Jesus' cross was, yes, his sacrifice for our sins. But we have to see that it's bigger than you and it's bigger than my sin. It's raised alluded at the beginning. The gospel's bigger than my sins, bigger than my relationship with Jesus. Jesus defeats the power of evil on the cross. And I think he had Judas in his inner circle to show that this was going to be the case. He could be betrayed by a friend and that lead to his cross. But his cross is the instrument by which he overcomes the world, by which he gives us life. So if you struggle to trust Jesus, if you doubt God's goodness in the face of evil, consider Jesus. Does it not make us trust him? Is Jesus' glory not overwhelming that he could handle having a friend who would betray him leading to his death? Is he not trustworthy because of this? Jesus knew the depths of Judas' wickedness and the unbelief of others, and yet he continued to walk with them. He was defeating evil, equipping his disciples, his true disciples, and challenging Judas, bringing out the truth in this false disciple. Jesus' cross brings victory over sin and death and evil. So if we struggle to trust Jesus, I think we, should, we ought to consider just his glory displayed in the cross and in human relationships that lead to the cross. Jesus, I think, is to be able to bear anything and everything we need. And I think that's true because he teaches in this passage that he is all that we need. So is he all, is he everything that we want? There's only two options. Jesus is either all, the one with the words of life, of eternal life, or he's nothing. There's no either or here. There's only two responses. Do we go the way of the crowd and leave him? Or do we go the way of Peter, who speaks, by the way, on behalf of the others? Do we trust Jesus? There are, I think, several points of application, what to do here in this passage. If you're not a Christian, if you are pretty sure you're not a Christian, before you walk away from Jesus, I ask you just to consider him. Jesus, he won't lie to you. Consider his words, consider his life. Ask questions of Jesus. Ask questions of those who are Christians here. We'd welcome your questions. But know that if you struggle to believe because there's just so much evil, how can a good God, yada, yada, that good God dwelled amongst evil in Jesus and defeated it in his death and resurrection. If you are confused, if you're not sure, do I stay or do I go? Do I follow Jesus or do I leave? I call you to entrust yourself to him fully. Consider this quote from Tim Keller, which applies, I think, to if you're seeking, or even for we who are Christians, because this gets at our motives, our wants, our desires. Keller says this, He says, we usually begin the journey toward God thinking, what do I have to do to get this or that from him? But eventually we have to begin thinking, what do I have to do to get him? If you don't make that transition, you will never actually meet the real God. But we'll only end up believing in some caricature version of him. Even for us who have been Christians for many years, we can begin to make our needs are once apart from Jesus what being a disciple really means but the gospel is that we get god fully that he dwells with his people that he conquers our sin first peter 3:18 that christ died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to god not just to make me feel better when i feel guilty sin, but to bring us to God. So Christians, are you coming to Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you come to him? Do you want him? Do I want him? As we are in approaching Easter season, we will in a few weeks have the Lord's Supper. And I hope this passage flashes up in your heart, in your mind's eye, to ask yourself ask am i ask myself am i feeding on jesus am i coming to him not food not money not respect not family security not a better marriage not jesus and how do we do this are you am i relying on jesus words simply if you don't read the bible you can't come to jesus so there's words of life here and if you struggle at reading Scripture, again, come, please talk to me. Talk to others. Talk to Ray, the big ball guy at the beginning. Sorry, Ray. Genuinely, there's life in the words of Christ. And what this is about is about us learning life in Christ together. And we need faith in Jesus, continued growing faith to come to Him. So we have to do this together. If you're a Christian and you're on the outskirts, even if you're a member and you're just waiting for somebody to come talk to you, maybe you have been dealt wrongly. But open up, come to Jesus by joining in fellowship with others. Finally, we can pray, and as we close every service, we want to pray together. And we can pray for God to make Jesus our desires. Because actually, as we come to Jesus, as we follow him, God changes our wants, transforms our desires to want him more. He gives us prayer so that we can do that. So let's pray now together. And as we do every week, I'll pray briefly and then ask you to pray uh, briefly. Uh, And if you're able even to stand so that others can hear you and pray loudly, please do so. Pray briefly so we can agree with you so others can pray. And then one of our elders will come and close us. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. Confess, Lord, that too often we seek satisfaction elsewhere. Give me, give us, give this congregation grace we need by the words of Jesus, by his life, the power of the Spirit to come to Him, to want to desire Him. Power us to do that this week, even as we pray now.